Welcome to Counterbalance Conversations, the show that engages your imagination with discussions about emerging topics and stories of healing, change-making, resilience, and passion. Here is your host, Dr. Melissa L. Strasser. Hello and welcome to Counterbalance Conversation. I'm your host, Melissa L. Strasser. And with me this week, I have Diana Cooper-Schmidt. She holds a Master of Social Work degree and works for the Department of Health in the Early Intervention Program, a federal entitlement program servicing children birth to three with developmental delays and disabilities. She has published online in the Huffington Post, Manifestation, Mother Magazine, Power of Moms, Motherwell Magazine, Still Standing Magazine, and her view from home. On the weekend, she indulges in her creative passion, working as a portrait photographer, specializing in newborn family, maternity, and event photography. She lives in New York City. After their oldest daughter, Emma, died unexpectedly at 18 years of age, Diana began writing to make sense of her grief of losing her child. Her memoir, Emma's Laugh, The Gift of Second Chances, is a tribute to and a celebration of Emma's life. Welcome, Diana. How are you today? Good. Thank you, Melissa. It's great to be here. Such a treat. I am so excited that you agreed to be on the show and came to share with us your story and your journey that you've gone on with Emma and Mm -hmm. as a writer. And I'm so excited to share all of our conversations that we've had behind the scenes with our audience. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about your story. Or You've told me a lot about your story, but tell our yeah. audience about your story. Yeah. So um, I wrote a memoir, um, which came out about six months ago. Um, um, and I started writing it after, um, as you mentioned, our oldest daughter passed away unexpectedly at 18 years of age. And Initially, I started writing as a way of processing the grief, making sense of the loss um, and making sense of the, you know, 18 years that we had with her. Um, And I was just writing it for myself because I don't, you know, I didn't ever aspire to write a book, certainly not about losing a child. It just sort of found, you know, it it's found its way in, in, into my life. And, um, in the writing of it, I realized that, uh, I thought that I was grieving for the first time. Like this was a grief journey that I was going through, but then I realized that this was actually the second time that I was grieving her loss because, uh, the first time was when she was born and we found out that she was born with a rare chromosomal abnormality that left her physically and intellectually disabled, with a myriad of medical concerns. Um, And that first time I was grieving the loss of a healthy child. I was grieving the loss of a life that we would never have with her and the the loss of the life that she would never have. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the first time really that I spiraled into a very, very deep grief cycle. Um, the, the ultimate of course was when she passed, but initially it was then when she was born and I didn't know what to do with myself. I mean, here I was a social worker with training, uh, in working with special needs kids. And here I have my own 
and I'm just, I feel unmoored. I feel, I, we were young, I mean, 26, but we were, you know, relatively young and we didn't have any friends or family um, with children with disabilities. So we felt like we were, you know, like pioneers and this was uncharted territory and I, I didn't do well with um, the notion that I, I didn't believe that I could be a good enough mother to her. I didn't believe that I would love her enough. Um, I, I bought into society's narrative basically that said, you know, that children with disabilities live tragic lives and they're to be pitied. And I didn't want to be relegated to that space with her. Um, and so when she was still in the hospital, um, and they were stabilizing her medically. The hospital social worker saw that I was not dealing well with everything. And she, she broached the subject of possibly putting her up for adoption. And I, I felt so ashamed because I just thought like, you know, who would want to do this? Like, if I don't feel that I'm capable of raising my own child, like who would do this, you know? And I asked her that and she said, you know, some people have a calling in life. And that was the way that she would describe it. And so we went home, my husband and I went home and we talked about it and we said we would only, uh, we would only do it if we could find a good, loving, adoptive home for her. And we did. We found a beautiful family who had three other adopted children. They were Down syndrome children. They wanted, they had two boys and a girl. They wanted another girl for the, for, you know, a sister for the little girl. We yeah. met with them. They were a religious family. They were uh, Orthodox Jews. We were, my husband and I were, you know, we're Jews. We were kind of like broke away from the, <laughs> but you know, this was like from the yeah. fold, but here this was right. like being brought back, you know, and we left and we just said to ourselves, you know, they're God fearing people. They're going to take good care of her. Right. And there was a lot of love in the home. So mm -hmm. we went home confident that we found a good, because we, you know, we, we wanted her to be in a loving home. And if it couldn't be ours, it had to be somebody else's. So we were comfortable with the family. Um, Emma was about five months old uh, when they, 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 you know, the, when the adoption happened and, and up until that point, we had all connected with her. We'd all bonded with her, <clears throat> the grandparents, us. Um, I spent every day with her in the hospital and, so when the adoption took place and we went home, I was pregnant with my second child. I just felt like I made a mistake. We had an open adoption situation. The parent, the mother, the adoptive mother kept calling me to tell me that Emma was in the hospital, very sick with pneumonia, with RSV. And I think she was preparing me for the worst. Um, mm -hmm. And I couldn't do anything because here I am in, in New York. They're in a different state. I'm literally sitting on my hands, pregnant and miserable, saying thinking that we made a mistake in giving her up. Um, and so I shared this with my husband one day and he proceeded to tell me that he was visiting Emma behind my back all this time. <laughs> I know. I was like, what? He knew. And not only that he knew, like he knew because we had an open adoption and, you know, he's just like, a, um, he's a much more evolved person than me. <laughs> he's just like a better <laughs> person than me. I always say that. Um, and he was visiting, he didn't want to upset me, but he would visit her. And every time he would visit her, she was in the hospital and things were not looking good. And then I find out that my parents were visiting her behind my back too. Nobody wanted to upset me because I was pregnant. And I was like, 
what is this conspiracy theory going on? <laughs> Everybody's conspiring. But like secretly, I was very proud of them, you know, because they followed yeah. their heart and they and they follow through. And it was on one of these visits that my husband found that the adoptive situation and to which we had given her up this conditional surrender with a two uh, family household no longer existed. Like something fell apart. I don't want to give too much mm-hmm. away because it'll right, encourage right. people to read the book, but right. the conditions no longer existed. They fell apart. And as a result of that, we had our rights back. So we very quickly reached out to the adoption agency and started the wheels turning to get her to bring her home. And that's exactly what we did. She came home. I had my son a month later. It was like instant twins. And then, <laughs> and then my daughter, my second daughter was born three years after my son. Um, and we proceeded to build this normal life, or at least that was my yeah. goal, you know, even yeah. though I was straddling these two universes, you know, the special needs world and the typically developing world. And I was doing it well, I thought, you know, like all my, all of my fears about being relegated to the outskirts of, you know, being a, a, a parent of a disabled child, they, I mean, they were there, but they weren't like, they were manageable. We were doing hard things, but we were doing them and we were doing them well. You know, we built like this family and I had two healthy kids that were wonderful and talented and loving and compassionate because they were being raised alongside their special needs sibling. And, um, and everything was working out well. And my husband were living, we were not denying ourselves anything. We were both working. The kids were all cared for. They were all three of them were in school. Emma had therapists in school and coming to the home. She had nurses. We were able to get nursing her because she was very, um, she was very uh, involved. She was very developmentally, very delayed. She was on at 18 years old. She was like on a, on a 10 month old level, right? She was non-ambulatory, non-verbal, she was G-tube fed. She couldn't eat by mouth and she had seizures and a bunch of other medical things, but she was just like this, this beautiful heart incarnate, you know, and yeah. she, and she had a way of um, telling you that she wanted things non-verbally. You, you never mistook, which, you know, mistook her and she had ways of communicating her needs. She, um, she forced me to find my own voice in advocating for her. We didn't have mm-hmm. a ramp in our apartment building and I, and I, I managed to get a ramp built and always kind of speaking up for mm-hmm. her. Um, and in her silent way, she helped me find my voice that I yes. didn't use as often as, as I should have before Emma. So those are just some of the things, you know, and, just when I thought that we were in the clear, because when she was born, one of the doctors said to us, well, children like that don't live past their first birthday. And he sort of gave her a death sentence. And we were just like flabbergasted. Like, how can you possibly say that? How could you know that? How can you say that, let alone know that? And then when she turned 18 years old, we were like, you know, like, you know, pulling a middle finger in his direction. Like, see, look how far we've come. She's 18 years old. She's healthy. And that's when she got sick. Um, yeah. And then just everything fell apart. Yeah. But so I started writing 
And in the writing of it, I, I had made all of these realizations, you know, like when you're sort of in the eye of the storm and we're living this life, you're, you're, you're kind of just like trying to get to the day you're, you're on survival mode, right? Just get to the next day, make sure everybody's okay. And, And so when she was alive, I didn't really have that much time to reflect, but when she passed and I started writing that and reading other grief memoirs and talking to people is when really I started seeing the, you know, all the lessons that she left and, and just like the purpose of her and the value of her and just really why, you know, she, she came to me and why I say that she chose me as her parent. And I'm very grateful for that because I, I do feel that, you know, we choose each other because we each have our journeys. I had a lesson to learn. She had her own journey, but she also had something yeah. to teach me. Um, and hopefully I had something to give her. And so this is all in the writing of, of the book. And um, I had to learn the craft of writing. I say that I'm a reluctant, I'm a reluctant and an accidental author. I'm, I'm not a writer. <laughs> it's like <laughs> my disclaimer. I'm not a writer. I've just been playing one for the last six years, you know? Right. Um, and reluctant because I, you know, I don't, I didn't want to have to write a grief memoir about losing a child. And, um, and an accidental because yeah, we didn't expect to, we didn't expect to lose her. So yeah, that's. So that, I mean, there's so, yeah. So you've been through so much and I know when we talked about, and it's a, it's an absolutely glorious story. I mean, you've shared so much Mm -hmm. of it with me and um, during our conversations, you talked about, you know, you had these benchmarks of different different times that you hit grief points. And mm-hmm. it wasn't just losing her. And you mentioned that during your story. Can mm-hmm. you kind of expand a little bit on that yeah. for our listeners? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, in the writing, uh, in the writing, I sort of got to contemplate grief, right? And exactly, you know, what it is and what it means and how we deal with it because it comes into, you know, it shows up in everybody's life. And I thought this was my first big grief, my first loss, you know, it's not meant to happen. We're not supposed to bury our children. But then again, as they started reflecting, I realized they were grief points way back into childhood when we um, immigrated um, as Jewish refugees, Jewish refugees from the former Soviet Union in 1979 to the United States. So mm-hmm. that was the first loss. It was loss yeah. of country, right? And there, and so grief and loss uh, kind of has different faces, right? And different iterations. Um, you could experience the loss of a country. You can experience the loss of a, of a person, right? Which is the ultimate mm-hmm. loss. Mm-hmm. There's loss of identity. And let's say becoming a parent, you lose yourself as a yes. person, right? Yes. There, there's loss of you know, friendships, housing, financial security, so many different losses and different iterations of loss. And my first loss was loss of a country, loss of country and loss of, you know, belonging to a community. I had to give up friends. I had to give up everything that I knew to come to this new country and build a better life, right? Mm-hmm. My, my father would always mm-hmm. say like, you know, this is the opportunity that America is giving us, you know, and, and, and you are going to fulfill those opportunities. And that he would say that, you know, children have to do and be better than their parents. So this was like no pressure. You know, you come to this country, you have to do better. (laughs) You 
have to be accomplished. You have to, you know, it was the first, like, you know, first person to get a, a higher education, a college degree, and then a master's degree. And so there was a lot of pressure to like perform and do well and succeed. And, and so when Emma was born, you know, I just saw that like as a failure, like this is a reflection of me. This is not better. This is so not better. And I think that's why you know, uh, I was able to give her up because I, I bought into this, like, you can't have a good life. You can't have a joyful life with a, a child with disabilities. And I bought, you know, I, I drank the Kool-Aid of what society, you know, ableist, we're, we still live, unfortunately, in an ableist mm-hmm. society. Um, yes. But this is going back 25 years ago when we were even yeah. less, you know, far further along. Um, and so that was the first so here, so I'm a child in a new country and I'm assimilating and doing okay. And then my parents decide to fulfill the ultimate American dream and buy a house and they buy a house and they move us to a different borough. But when it's great on the surface, but the problem is that I'm 17 years old and that's a horrible age to be uprooted from your friends, you know, move to a different, you know, a different place and having to, and you know, and having to prove yourself again, right? To now like a new group of kids. So it was very difficult being a new kid on the blog. Um, I left my friends, my boyfriend behind in where we lived previously. And I would shuttle back and forth every weekend, you know, back to them. But that move in adolescence also unsettled me very much. So, I mean, I developed like social anxiety and it stayed with me for a long, long time, for decades, I want to say, until you know, I found my voice with Emma. Um, and so that was the, the second big loss, right? My losing my friends, losing community, feeling like I don't belong again and I have to belong. That was the second time. And the, the third time, the, the, the next blow after that was when Emma was born. And so now I, I, I'm forced to, again, find my place in a new community. And this time, a community of special needs families. And I did not want to belong to this community. Like, I didn't want to be a member of their club, you know. Um, It didn't look good. It didn't look fun. (laughs) It looked sad and scary. And because because I didn't know uh, the beautiful things um, that that, that that it promised. And so... Um, my goal was to just have a sense of normalcy, raising my family and doing all the things that we could do. Um, and there was nothing to see here. And it was just, you know, we're okay. We're fine. Nothing to see here kind of thing. Um, and after the fact, of course, I, I, I regret not connecting with other special needs parents. Cause I think I, I could have learned a lot from them and I could have gotten even more support than I had with the village and the tribe that I built uh, within my family and friends. And we had done that. And I think the reason I didn't seek out that other community was because I had enough of that with, um, with my family and my friends. We, we had a lot of supportive friends. They did everything around our schedule. So like they knew that for new years, we couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't travel even outside of our home. So we would, you know, open up our home and throw these big New Year bashes and everybody would come to us because we knew that this is where we were and this is where Emma was. Mm -hmm. And so they were very accommodating um, in that way. And so we were fulfilled. There was nothing really that, you know, I didn't feel lacking. 
in, right. in any in any way. Um, and then we also had the support of the nurses. You know, Emma had a nurse that would pick her up off the bus every day and and do her G two feedings and medication and wait for us to come home from work, and then we would take over. So she was always covered. She always had people caring for her. Yeah, it really was. You know, such a I'm so grateful for it because I know that had this happened, let's say in the former Soviet Union, not only would we not have these resources and these services, but mm-hmm. we wouldn't even have the ability to raise Emma at home because she had, she had so many needs, right? She had so many medical mm-hmm. needs and physical needs that she probably would have been like relegated some place to an institution never to be seen again. So this was the gift that this country gave us the, you know, the gift of being able to raise a child in our home with all of the supports. Mm -hmm. And ironically, you know, all the help that Emma received, well, especially the early intervention program, which you mentioned, I work for this program. Now I have it for 20 years. I almost fell into it accidentally. I didn't even know what I was. I didn't realize what I was interviewing for when I interviewed for the position of the person who (laughs) approves services for little ones like our Emma. Yes. I don't know, you know, because whatever the description did. And I felt like I was on autopilot a lot of like a lot of a lot of the early years were a fog, right? Because you're just like kind of like trying to get through the day. You're juggling a lot of balls and you're 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 trying to get um, to the next day. And so when I realized that this is the work that I was doing, um, I was so grateful because I was able to give back to this community, to this program that sent therapists to our home uh, Mm -hmm. until Emma was three years old and helped her achieve or move towards, you know, her full potential. So it's funny, life came full circle. I was a parent and then, uh, and then I got to do it professionally and give back and I was also a therapist. So I got to touch on like all, you know, on each part of the spectrum of this special needs community. Um, and I was very grateful for that because how often does that happen? That's fantastic. Yeah. And so many, you had so many synchronicities yes. in your life. You had yeah. so many synchronicities. And I noticed that whenever you were telling me the story and weaving through um, pre-show and it was such divine intervention Mm -hmm. in so many ways for Mm -hmm. you from um, the, from the home, not that you had adopted her to not working out and her coming back to you to, you know, to you now working in that role, that same role yeah. and having all those people in your That's life. True. So many synchronicities that it's incredible to me. It had to have been mm-hmm. just divine intervention. I think so. I mean, synchronicity is a great word. I really do feel that, um, you know, our life experiences are sort of like training wheels, right? They prepare us for certain things. I'm mean, here. I am a social mm-hmm. worker. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an accountant. I'm a social worker who specializes in children with special needs. And then I have my own, right? Right. And then the the adoption situation doesn't work out. Because why? Because she was meant to come home. She was meant to be raised by us. And so the universe realigned or however you want to look at it or call it. It it did realign and, 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 and she came back and we fulfilled whatever, um, whatever we needed to fulfill in that role as parents. Um, Yes, a lot of synchronicity. And even like past her her death, like I made a spiritual connection to her. And because of that, 
the book came out of that connection that I made with her after she passed. That's awesome. After our break, I would love to expand on that. And Mm -hmm. I think that, and then we can talk some about your writing and a couple of other things that I wanted to talk about with Emma's legacy. Sounds great. So as soon as we come back for our break. Are you looking for an hour to allow your imagination to soar? An hour for self-care? An hour to learn something new? Join Dr. Melissa L. Strausser for conversations and stories that'll give you that hour to listen to tales of triumph and conversations about emerging topics from coaches, entrepreneurs, entertainers, authors, and everyday heroes. You'll hear about healing, change-making, resilience, and passion. We invite you to take the journey and join us for Counterbalance Conversations on Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are tuned into Counterbalance Conversations with Dr. Melissa L. Strasser. Find out more about Dr. Melissa by visiting counterbalancecoach.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Counterbalance Conversations. If you're just joining us, we're here with Diana Kupershman, and we are talking about her book, Emma's Laugh, A Gift of Second Chances, and When we left for our break, we were talking about how you connected with Emma um, and wrote wrote your book after her passing. So let's talk a little bit more about that. And I would love to hear about her legacy because she has such a beautiful legacy and Mm -hmm. how this kind of was weaving you into becoming this amazing author that you are now. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so after she passed, um, I was not doing well. And one of my closest friends said, you know, I, I went to see a medium. He's this guy. He's been doing it for many years. Um, I had a good experience with him. Why don't you give him a shot? Like, you have nothing to lose. And I was so desperate for answers um, that I, I figured I don't have anything to lose. Plus, also, even though I was always sort of like an agnostic, I didn't know what I didn't know, I felt like spiritually I was connected um, on some level. And so I dabbled in some readings about the soul, et cetera. So I was open to it and I was desperate. So I go to see this guy and Emma... It, it been like two months after she passed. But before I went to see him, I started do reading, um, reading up on things like as a way of, you know, coping with her death and reading books like, you know, do dead people watch you shower or whatever. Like, I was just <laughs> get my hands up. Right. There's a medium who wrote a, a bunch of books that's like actually, on that uh, topic. That's a common <laughs> question yeah, that yeah. I get. I'm not a medium, yeah. but I get that as a card reader. So I get, funny. I get that. Do, do dead people watch you shower? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. That's not my area. <laughs> That's so funny, right? So I was, so I was like preparing myself, and I said, you know, I'd rather believe than not, right? So I remember, um, so I go to this, I go to this person, and the minute I sit down, you know, I'm he immediately connects me to what I understand to be Emma, my grandmother who had passed three years prior, who had lived with us for twelve years, and a dog. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we had a dog. So I made, you know, 
I made sure to um, not like give out too much information to him, obviously, but so I didn't say anything. I, you know, you, you give your name and your date of birth and whatever, and you hope he doesn't go on your Facebook page and sees everything that's been going on. Right. And the thing with the dog that kind of let me know that he was like the real deal was that, you know, he, I nowhere in the Facebook, uh, in my Facebook writing, was there anything about a dog? Because that happened, a dog passing, that we lost a dog when I was pregnant with Emma. And nobody knew about that. So when he mentioned the dog, he said, so there's a dog that you either lost or whatever. And then he mentioned my sister's name and everybody's names. Um, and then I, so I just started like talking, but without giving too much away. And he basically connected me to the dog, Emma, my grandmother. And he started saying things like that. She was a very, um, sort of special. She was an evolved soul because only an evolved soul can return, um, in the physical form that she did with all of her limitations, you know, um, uh, that it took an evolved soul to do that, that this was like a big deal. And he was like very impressed <laughs> with her. And I was like, yeah, she was a very impressive little girl, you know? Yes. <laughs> um, and, um, and he said, there's a book. I'm seeing a book. I'm being shown a book. I don't know what it means. Are you a writer? I said, I'm not a writer. I said, I'm a photographer, I'm a social worker. So I'm thinking maybe because I was looking to do something as a tribute to her. And I said, maybe I can do something with photography. Maybe I can offer my services to, let's say, her school where, you know, the their yearly photos are like so egregious. Like they don't wipe the drool off the kids' faces or they don't take the straps off their wheelchairs. You know? like, I could do like a nice photo for them, like a yearly, you know, for these poor kids. So when he said book, I said, okay, maybe a photo book. Like never in my wildest imagination did I think he was talking about an actual book, book, like memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he said something about uh, a group or finding or seeing me in a group or a club. And I said, mm, I'm not really a club kind of person. Like I don't belong to groups. Like I'm, I'm you know, I'm better like one-on-one. I'm not, I'm not a group person. Right. Uh and so he told me a bunch of other things that he had no way of knowing. He couldn't have known had he looked through all of my Facebook. Um, so I left his office with a renewed sense of hope. And um, I felt like he gave me my life back because I knew that this was not the end. Um and even at that point, I knew that I connected with her. And it's funny because he meant, she said to me, like, have you, so have you gone to somebody else before coming here or have you connected with her on your own? And I said, you know what? I connected with her on my own. And this is what happened. I returned to work shortly after she passed, way too soon. I couldn't stay in the home, uh, at home. I was, was seeing her in every corner. I said, I have to stay busy. So I returned to work and my first day from work was, horrendous it was so difficult because I'm doing meetings for these kids like my Emma and it's like Mm -hmm. you know I can't I can't be I can't be here now reliving everything so I went home that first day and as I walk into my apartment building I say a mental prayer to Emma and I and I never did that before but after reading all these books about dead people you know watching you shower I said just (laughs) give me a sign right like give me a sign just let me know that you're okay And five minutes after I walk into my apartment, there's a package from her school. 
And I'm thinking like, oh, it's extra clothes that we sent into her because she would chew on her shirts. And so we'd have mm-hmm. to like send in or she would like, you know, pee through her diaper or whatever. So we had a lot of extra clothes that we sent with her. And I said, this must be the extra clothes left over. I opened the package and in the package is a framed photo of her that the school put together. And in this photo, yeah, Emma, which they had taken, Emma is poised for a kiss. Now, she used to blow these kisses where you'd say, Emma, blow me a kiss. She would put her lips together and just like, and just do this like pop with her. So yeah. she'd blow you a kiss that way. In this photo, she is poised for a kiss. Like literally her lips are together and she's blowing me a kiss. And this is the photo and this is the sign so I said, as a matter of fact, you know, yes, she came to me. This was the sign. I asked her to yeah. let me know she was okay. And she did exactly that. And of course, after that, like everywhere, there were signs mm-hmm. everywhere, everywhere. I took the wrong turn. I end up in front of a school. I'm listening to a commercial on the radio. The company's name is Emma. We meet her doctor on the other side of the country, skiing, who operated on her legs on the other side of the country on top of a mountain. You know, like so many synchronicities mm-hmm. that you you can't, you can't make this stuff up, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can I give it? Can I tell you something? Yeah. yeah my, do- my dog's name is Emma. Stop. <laughs> no. So. Oh yeah. This is crazy. This is so, meant to be. This is meant yeah. to be. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> say that to me before but now we're talking dogs and we're talking we are Emma. we're talking yeah. dogs and dogs emma and, and she's together yeah. they're together yeah. and and the medium it's so interesting because i the dog came to a very tragic end accidentally and i was pregnant with emma and the medium said to me that um they are soulmates they travel together you know and i said it makes perfect sense because the dog passed while I was pregnant with her. And here are both of them, you know, making their appearance. I said, it makes perfect sense. Um, so, yeah, a lot of synchronicities. And, you know, he said to me, we all have these intuitions, right? We just have to tap into it and be open to it. And if you're not open to it, like my husband's not open to it because he's a, he's a scientist, right? He's like a right. devout scientist. If you can't prove it, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. And, you know, you know, he has his own belief system. Then we clash very often on that level, but I'm happy to give him, you know, his, you can't change anybody. Right. Like, and so give me my beliefs. Cause we used to clash in the beginning. I want to share with him, like my experiences and my, yeah. my the different things that, you know, the, the signs that I would get from him. And he would be like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't talk to anybody. I have nothing in common with. I don't talk to dead people. I don't talk to homeless people. I said, that's horrible. That's such a dumb thing to say. You know what I mean? Like he was joking, but, but he would visit her grave every weekend and not tell me about it. And he would leave, you know, and he would leave like, you know, food for the squirrels and the rabbits on her tombstone. And so I said, for somebody that's not spiritual, that's a very spiritual thing to do, right? To visit her every weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, so that's, so after I was able to connect with her, I knew that um, I had to do, I had to write the book. And so the club and the group that he was referencing ended up being the first writing workshop that I took after she passed. And it wasn't a conscious decision. It wasn't like I decided I'm going to write a book because again, I'm not a writer. So what would compel me 
but I found myself in a writing group because I've, I realized that the few pages that are found themselves on my computer were, you know, accumulating into something, you know? And I said, if I'm going to write, if I'm going to do something, my perfectionist tendencies told me I have to do it right. So I have to learn the craft of writing because if yes. I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it well, <laughs> you know? Right. And so that's how I ended up in that first group club, my first writing workshop. And it was such a great experience. And I got such good feedback from the instructor and from the other students that encouraged me to keep writing. And I said, if nothing else, it'll be a legacy for my children, you know, Mm -hmm. for family, if nothing else. And maybe it'll find its way into um, hands that need it, like other special needs parents. Because the truth is that when Emma was born, there was no such book. I couldn't find a book on raising a special needs child, losing that special needs child. There was just, that book did not exist. And, and I decided that if nothing else, it'll be that book that I wish existed when she was born Mm -hmm. to tell people that it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all darkness and tragedy, that there's light and beauty and wonder and miracles with these children and that you shouldn't be afraid and that you can do hard things, you know? And and that's, um, I had shared with you that my mom was disabled. And so I had it in kind of, I had kind of a reverse experience with the, um, the differently abled world. Mm -hmm. I had it from a child's perspective with a parent and it, it is, it, it's glorious and wonderful, and sometimes it's terribly difficult. It's terribly difficult. Yeah. But you find that you walk through it, and you're more resilient than you thought, and you learn more things than you ever thought that you would know. Yeah. Um, looking back, my mom's passed at this point. Uh, she passed mm-hmm. eight years ago. And sometimes I think about the things that I actually know that – a lot of my friends go, how do you know that? And it's because I had to learn it, not because I wanted to learn Mm -hmm. it or I went and sought out the information, but sometimes I was advocating for her. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I was a support for her. Sometimes, you know, her, she was very similar. She had social, she um, was a social worker as I was growing Mm -hmm. up. And then as she got older, she was an advocate for uh, people in the workplace, CEO for the uh, government. So I, I assimilated a lot of the information. So I got it in the reverse direction. I didn't have to go find right. it most of the time. Right. But it is, it's it's really an amazing journey when you think about it in a reflection standpoint. But when you're in the middle of it, and I think your your book is really important for this, when you're in the middle, it doesn't always feel great. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard and you Mm -hmm. have to push yourself to do those hard things. Yeah. Yeah. So I can, I can absolutely relate. And I think that is a tremendous legacy and a tremendous gift that you have given the world. I hope so. I think um, Susan Shapiro, who's an author, uh, says to her writing students, she says, you know, um, writing is taking the worst experience, your worst experience and making something beautiful out of it. And I think, you know, I hope that I did that. I hope 
that my book can be of use to somebody. And I think like from the responses that I've gotten, um, it's been very encouraging because, you know, parents will reach out to me, whether they're raising a special needs child or not. And they're saying it's resonating with them because I think my book is not just about raising a special needs child and losing a child. I mean, there are universal themes, right? Of belonging, of grief that happens to everybody, Mm -hmm. of, you know, of, of doing hard things, of not being broken by hard things and growing growth. I mean, and that's really the universal themes that I, I hope my book touches on. And so people have been resonating with me and that is such a gift. Like I hadn't ever imagined that it would make the impact that it's made thus far. And it's only been six months out there and um, it's gotten really good feedback and I'm and I'm so very um humbled yeah you have um such a gentle nature about you and such a direct way of presenting hard things and it's very direct but it's compassionate and I think that is what probably the people are are resonating with they're saying hey here's a lady that is just like us and she's done this hard thing for 18 years uh raising her daughter and then losing her daughter and then using that to reflect on all the different and to grow from all the different grief points in her life And I think that really resonates because you come across as a very real person that is accessible. And I think that is, I I think that is going to continue to resonate with individuals. And I was so excited. I I know that I don't want to belabor this, but you've, when you, I loved the picture on your Facebook where you were saying, look, my book is in my local library. Yeah. And for those of us, and I think I shared this with you, those of us who have been writers or aspiring authors or spent most of their childhood in the library, mm-hmm. finding your book on the library shelf would be, I think, even more exciting than seeing mm-hmm. it on the bookshelf in a bookstore. Right. I think. It's, it's like, the ultimate, right? Yes, it's the ultimate. And the same library where I raised my kids, where I took them to readings, where we left with, you know, armful of books, that very same library is carrying my book. And it's just like, it's unfathomable, you know, like I could not have imagined. And uh, how many people it could impact being on that shelf. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I mean, in your community. Yeah, that's the biggest thing is even though you are on the global stage and it's available, you know, globally, which I know is mind blowing, but your own community. Yeah, um, you could impact. I think for me, it would be extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And for those people that, you know, are not able to purchase the book, like what a gift, Mm -hmm. you know, I was always a book collector. And my husband would say like, why? Because I was an I was an avid reader growing up always. I was that kid, even in high school, like walking home off the, off the bus, public bus with a book in my hand. I mean, like talk about, you know, nerd at 17, 18, but I was always with a book in my hand. So, you know, authors are my heroes. Like they've always been. And to be in that 
community and to have that. To, I still don't believe it. You know, I still don't believe it. And, and, and I know that this will be my one hit wonder because people say like, when's your next book coming out? I'm like, that's it. I got nothing else. I said everything that I needed to say in this book, you know, one hit wonder, assuming it's a hit and a wonder and that's it. Like, this is, yeah. it was a very hard thing to do. It, you know, you're, you're yeah. bleeding, you're opening a vein, essentially, especially when you're writing memoir. Um, yeah. And so uh, a difficult process, reliving all of that loss, reliving, you know, all the, the horrible things that happened to her, the injuries, the surgeries, you know, the not being able to protect her sometimes from getting hurt, not being able to have her tell us when somebody was being negligent or, you know, there were some instances where um, we had some, she got hurt because people were negligent and you can't forgive mm-hmm. yourself for that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that the hardest part is not, you know, because Emma didn't have agency over her body or mind. She couldn't tell us, okay, somebody's being neglectful or somebody's being, you know, nobody was abusive, but negligence. Yes, it took place. And, it, it, it just, as a parent, it kills you that you can't protect your child, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially a child that can't speak for herself. So this was always my, uh, that, that always kind of, I battled that because, you know, it's important to have a sense of control and especially over the safety of your own kids. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I was not always able to keep her safe. And that killed me, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, hard things. But she, I, I hope, I know she had a good life. I know that she, she had this way about her. She had this Zen way about her. She was happy watching her musicals every day and flipping through magazines and chewing on her bib. And she was like, she had this unbearable likeness of being. I used to say like, she yeah. was so chill and she was good. Like, you know. And she had her siblings running around and she got a kick out of them because they're like, they'd run in front of her and she would try to like reach for them. Um, um, and, and she would laugh because they'd be like boisterous and playing around <laughs> her with her. <laughs> and, and she was a happy little girl and she like loved everybody. Like if you were in her sphere, yeah. you were her best friend. And all you had to do was, and this was the other thing, the big gift that she gave me, you know, with my, my typically developing kids, I was that mom that, you know, the kids had to do well in school, that they had to have their requisite sport and the, and the instrument and whatever. And there were conditions and standards set on my healthy kids because they were capable. Yeah. But with Emma, there were no conditions. The only condition yeah. was love because with Emma, it was just, you sat with her and you played with her and you sang to her and you clapped for her and you were enough and she was enough. Yeah. You know, and that's the biggest gift that she gave me. That, you know, unconditional love, I know it's like a, it's, it's a, it's an overused term, but really mm-hmm. that was it. That was the lesson. Yeah. You know? And and that is, that is so beautiful. That is such a beautiful gift that she left you with. So it yeah. sounds like she was like water and she mm-hmm. just kind of flowed with everyone around. Mm-hmm. Um, so one question, because I, you know, we've got just a few minutes left. Um, have you found your tribe yet? Mm. I did. I mean, I found my tribe of family and friends and all the supports in Emma. And now in the writing of the book, I found, um, a handful of special needs parents who also happen to be writers and or authors. 
and other authors. This is my new tribe, you know, my tribe of authors and um, so supportive and I've learned so much. And, and this is a whole new, wonderful, brave new world that I'm, I'm so honored to be part of, because as I said, writers and authors were my heroes and they still are. And to be in that group, if even for a minute is just everything, you know. That's glorious. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, in the last couple of minutes, of, um, do you have a couple of things you would like to leave the audience with? And it can be, it can be anything, even how to find your book and how to yeah. get in contact with you. Yeah. So just a couple of takeaways. Um, what I want to, to leave the audience with is that for me, the, the gift for me was that um, the lesson for me was that sometimes um, you can find gifts where you least expect it. And that was Emma. I did not see it as a gift at first. And, you know, uh, you get, you don't get, you don't always get what you want. You get what you need. I think mm -hmm. that's, you know, mm -hmm. right. That's one of the lessons. Um, and I think the other uh, thing is that, just in terms of grief, that grief touches everyone in different ways, but it doesn't have to break us. It could be an opportunity for growth and for change. And finally, I learned that grief and hope and gratitude and even joy can coexist. Um, and they can all occupy the same space. And that's really life. Um, so those are the takeaways for me. My book can be found on Amazon or anywhere books are sold, Barnes and Nobles, your local bookstore, you can order it or you can order it from your local library. Um, I write about Emma um, and, and I post pictures on my Instagram account, which is Picks by DK and also on my website at dianacooperschmidt.com. And I hope people will check it out. I will. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I enjoyed our conversation as I do every time we have an opportunity to talk. And for the audience, I want to thank you so much for joining us for this great counterbalance conversations with Diana. And thank you for your continued support through the end of 2021 of counterbalance conversations. We wish you a happy, safe new year and a prosperous 2022. And until next time, be well. Thank you, Melissa. This was such a treat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Counterbalance Conversations. Be sure to join your host, Dr. Melissa L. Strausser, for another inspiring show next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next program, be well, be inspired, be the counterbalance.